G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The story. Yeah, that was getting into the late 30s. About 38, 39, I would have been when I had my mental blackout and found myself in Newcastle. And I've got no idea how I, I got there, but I found myself on the road outside of a place called Gladstone in North Queensland. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. A fascinating one for you today that shows once again that truth can sometimes be stranger than fiction. I mean, this is really movie material. In 1987, Ron Saunders was listed as one of the top 25 missing people in Australia. 23 years later, he was found in Mackay, Queensland, where he had been all along. What had he been doing for all that time and why wasn't he found? Karen Hunt caught up with Ron Saunders in Mackay, Queensland to find out his very interesting story. Now, I'm aware that you weren't born in Australia. You were born in Germany. Tell us which part of Germany and what was it that brought you to our country at the age of two? Well, I was born in a town called Regensburg, which is the second biggest town in the state of Bavaria in Germany. I was born there after the war when... My father met my mother when he was working in the American camp. He was a prisoner of war of the Americans and they put him to work in the kitchens and he met mum there and then they got married. I came along and then they saw that there was nothing really for them there in Germany after the war. There was no chance of getting any better work or housing or anything. So at the time there was a waiting list for people to come to Australia and there was Canada and a few few other places but Australia had the shortest waiting list to emigrate to so they got the nod to come out to Australia but they had to find their own way to uh, Italy to uh, get on a boat and come out. It, that took nearly two and a half months to get out here and then um, we got uh, offloaded and sent to um, the old Japanese prisoner of war camp in Cowra, in um, mid- south of uh, New South Wales. And Dad had to go wherever they sent him. Uh, in the, part of the agreement was the first two years that he was here, he had to work where the government sent him. So he spent most of that first two years working in Bathurst, uh, working in kitchens and what have you. And then he got some information that there was um, work available in a uh, furniture factory in a little place called Matraville in Sydney. So he managed to get a a job there. And at the back of that place, they had these little two-bedroom cabins that um, they could have for accommodation. So he managed to get a hold of one of them and worked his, his butt off for the next three years to save up enough money to put a deposit on um, a spec-built house and land there in Matraville, just up the road. Apparently everybody told him he was crazy. Matraville was the ends of the earth. Now you can't get anything there for love or money. 
places there now are, are uh, like seven hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars for an ordinary little house, and he paid three thousand pound at the time there to get a hold of that place. Wow! What are your memories, though, as a young child there? Well, in the beginning, when we first moved there, there were only about four other houses in the street, and then slowly it got built up uh, more and more and. All the, the kids that were there, we used to just play out in the streets, kicking balls around, and there was a big vacant paddock up the end of the road. We used to do the old cowboys and Indians and everything in and and crack a night, which we were allowed to have back then. We used to have a big bonfire out in the middle of the paddock and and go crazy there on crack a night. Did you have siblings or you're an only child? I had a sister who was five years younger than me. Uh, we were never really close because of the big age difference. I didn't want a little girl tagging along with me when I was <laughs> playing with all the other tough boys in the neighbourhood. <laughs> uh, it was only really when I turned 15 and 16 and discovered girls and discovered she had some interesting girl, girlfriends there that I'd let her hang around with them. But, yeah, but that, uh, yeah, that was the old good old days, I suppose. So is God real to you in your young years? Not like he's real to me now. He he was just somebody that you appeal to every now and then, oh, please, don't let me get into trouble, God, that sort of thing. But he wasn't as big a factor. He was there, but it wasn't as important as it is now. And what about your actual parents? Were you close to them? I I suppose I was closer to my mum than my dad because... He was away working a lot, um, and my mother was never a really healthy person. I was, and I, being the older one, had to be there to help out a lot. Um, she had um, an overactive thyroid, laid her down a fair bit, and then later in life too, she had um, cancer of the cervix. I had to be there to help her with a, a lot of things. You know, she couldn't look after herself as well as she wanted to, so. That, it was me, so I suppose that's where we were closer than uh, me and my dad. What happened as you entered into your early 20s? Good question. A few things took me off the, I suppose, the straight and narrow. Not making correct decisions was, was one of them in that, um, I suppose, got married too early, too quickly, not thinking the consequences through, looking at life through rose-coloured glasses all the time and not seeing that everything is not hunky-dory all the time, that um, you have to um, be prepared to suffer for any poor decisions that you made. When I got married and what have you, I was trying hard to save to uh, build a house, but it seemed to me that I was just working for nothing because the other half just wanted to spend the money all the time on this, that and the other and all the fancy trimmings. We just couldn't seem to get ahead. And then, of course, once the kids came along, things got tougher. Because at the same time, back then, your um, insurance and um, repayments on your bank loans was going up continuously. In fact, at one stage, they reached nearly 17%, I think, back in those days. And finding it hard to save and make ends meet, and I think basically I just had a big mental blackout and um, just basically turned my back on the world and um, had a breakdown. And Did you have children? Yeah, we had a, a boy and a girl and then um, 
all of a sudden I found myself in Newcastle. I'd gone to work one morning and, and like the old story about the fellow going to the shop to buy butter, never made it home. So, Ron, how old were you in this season of your life? Yeah, that was getting into the late 30s. About 38, 39 I would have been when I had my mental blackout and found myself in Newcastle. And I've got no idea how I, I got there, but I found myself on the road outside of a place called Gladstone in North Queensland. And I met a fellow called George Muirhead. He'd been down to Brisbane to do some buying and selling and stuff, farm machinery. And he had a couple of properties up the other side of Rockhampton. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, not much at the moment. And he actually took me back to his place. And I think I was there probably about three months. And his wife, and he had two kids. And I fixed up his house for him because I, I could, was handy with the tools fixed his kitchen cupboards and everything. His wife was as happy as Larry because she could actually open and close doors on her cupboards. What about your wife at this time? Did she know where you were? No. She had no idea and I had no memory. It was just a big blank in the back of my mind. And every time I tried to think about it, it, it just made me wonder, was I crazy? You know, where, what happened to me? And then I'd, I'd think to myself, what have I done to be in such a position? And then I just feel guilty and think, oh, maybe I've committed murder or a bank robbery or something and I'll just shut up and forget about it. And then, then I'd occasionally jump inside of a bottle and that would help me really forget stuff. Yeah, and I just kept carrying on like that. Do you have any idea how you got from Newcastle then up to Queensland? No idea. None at all. I just keep thinking to myself how lucky I must have been or well, God must have had his hand on me to, to keep me safe in that journey. And from there on, it was just a series of more journeys like that, back in and out of places, finding work, managing to stay alive, until I ended up in a place called Cardwell up on the north coast. So we're talking the north coast, far north Queensland, but you had no idea of your identity. You didn't know at this stage that, your name was Gabrielle. Tell us how your street name came about. I think I passed a place called Saunders Beach along the way there and I thought, okay, that's a good enough name and it sounds pretty ordinary. So I just got Ron Saunders out of that. Saunders, the surname, Ron, for any particular reason? No, no, it just sounded pretty ordinary. And how were you able to go about getting work and functioning and eating and living with that's, that name? That's another reason I think God must have had his hand on me because most of the time I'd just be talking to people and they'd say, oh, yeah, so-and-so needs some, somebody to do some work. So you just lob up there. Back then, too, there wasn't as much paperwork involved in, in getting a job or anything. They'd just look at you and ask you, you know, what can you do? You tell them. A lot of the work was just, you know, maintenance or local clean-up, gardening and that sort of stuff. You're listening to The Story. Today, Karen Hunt is on location in Mackay, Queensland, chatting with Ron Saunders, who had been missing for 23 years. Next, we'll find out how he eventually meets yesterday's guest, Pastor Barry Hayhoe, and 
how Ron finds out his real name. That and more of this fascinating story when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Karen Hunt on location in Mackay, Queensland, chatting with Ron Saunders, who had been listed as missing for 23 years. He had had a mental blackout and didn't want to remember his past for fear that he'd done something wrong. It all begins to turn around after he meets Pastor Barry Hayhoe and his wife, Karen. Ron, your identity, you had no clue who you were at that time. Tell us about the bicycle ride that then brought you south. Yeah, well, I had this old push bike that I'd managed to pick up at the tip. (laughs) It was a size 24 bike and it had 27-inch wheels on it, which fitted all right as long as you were going in a straight line. But if you wanted to turn to go around a corner, you had to stop pedalling, otherwise your pedals would hit the wheels and you'd knock yourself off the bike. So one day you decided, I'm just heading south. Yeah, and I just rode from dawn till dusk and then go and hide inside the road in the bushes, go to sleep and get up and go on, stop at the roadside stops there, have a drink of water and scrounge whatever I could out of the bins, uh, just kept going. And like I said, I've got no idea what made me decide to do it. So there must have been something up there happening. You were definitely looked after. I mean, you said you rode not for one day, not for two days, but for three days heading south. Did you have any idea at that time that you were listed as a missing person? I don't know. Like I said, I had these vague feelings that my life wasn't right, but I just didn't want to think about it, just in case I, I had done something terrible, you know, like killed somebody or whatever. So I just basically, you know, shut up shop in my brain and just lived as, as I saw fit. And at this time, you weren't remembering the fact that you had a wife, you had two children. No, probably all suppressed too. But I, I can talk about that now. But back then, you know, I didn't even want to think about anything like that. I just wanted to live for, for the day sort of thing. Mm. So survival was yeah. important, yeah. and you found yourself in Mackay. In Mackay. And then one day I was sitting on a, on a park bench down near the river and Pastor Barry and Karen turned up in the old street van and started setting up shop, and I didn't know what they were doing, and I thought, oh, I'm interrupting something here, and I got up to leave, and Karen said, hey, where are you going? Basically, stay, have a feed. So I did. I had a feed there. Then the next time they come there, I had another feed again. Then I'd I'd watch what they were doing and I'd try to help. And then I just went to the old church there one day and I I knocked on the door and asked Pastor Barry if I could, you know, help with the street van. And he said, yeah, he already had a a guy there that had drive it out there of a morning and I'd just help him load the van up and and get gear ready and go out there and and help set up. 
And then I'm, I managed to get some accommodation at some iffy people's place. Uh, I had a little room there for myself, but there were always big arguments and drugs going down there. So I went and knocked on Pastor Barry's door there one day and, and asked him, you know, if there's anything he could do to help. Uh, I said, I've, I've got to get out of the way that I'm living. And that's when the old thing I knocked and you answered, I asked and you gave, really hit me because that's what Pastor Barry did for me. Mm. He took me to his house and gave me a roof over my head for a few weeks there while he figured out what he wanted to do with me, I suppose. Uh, He must have seen something good in there because he said, he asked me if, if he built a room at the church, would I stay there as the caretaker? And I jumped at that chance. So this is where I think that God put that idea to to ride from Cardwell down to Mackay mm. and start being a good servant. What a blessing. Definitely. Did you become actively interested and involved in the work of the church itself? Was God more real now in these days? God was definitely more real in, in that I could see that what we were doing was for a purpose. It wasn't there for getting kudos and claps on the back. It was really to help people in the community. But it was also after a couple of years there that I started getting these little what I call flashlight moments, which happened in a big hurry later on. But I'd get a, a little memory and that was when I started getting this thing about Gabriel Nagy, Gabriel Nagy coming into my head. And um, I don't know what, but it seemed to me that it, that was the real thing. So um, Pastor Barry helped me then to get the ball rolling to get my name changed on, on all my things there, to Medicare card and the bank and the other things there with, with Centrelink and what have you. He stood behind me and said, yeah, well, if that's what he says his name is, I believe him. And then they helped me to get all this other information that I needed to prove who I was. I imagine that was quite a process in itself. Tell us about it. And then my eyes started getting bad. So I went for an eye test and she told me that I had cataracts. And she said, but the good news is they can be fixed. So two weeks later, I went in there and got my eye fixed. And that went down in the records with Medicare and everything. And at the same time as that was going on, they were apparently doing one last search for me through all the records, and my name came up on the Medicare records. And the police in Sydney got in touch with the police in Mackay to uh, come out and ask me a few questions. And a lady constable asked me a few questions, gave me a card and said, can you ring that number? And I thought, oh, it's a bit late to be ringing anybody now on the Friday at this time. I'll ring them Monday morning. Anyway, on the Monday, I spoke with Constable Georgina Robinson down there and she said, we have reason to believe that you're a missing person. 
And we've been looking for you for a few years. Just a few? We're talking like 23 years. Yeah. She said, can I come up and talk to you? I said, yeah, you can come up. She said, will you still be there? I said, yeah, I'm getting too old to be running anywhere these days. Um, a couple of weeks later, she arrived and we had the interview. And this is what I, I'm going to say about these um, flashbulb moments. And she started showing me these little photos. And it's just like in the cartoons when you see that little flash going off above somebody's head. It felt like that on top of me head. And then she gave me some letters. Then we went outside and she took some photos of me and her, of me and Pastor Barry and her, and just plain old me. And she said, right, I'll leave it the ball in your court now. He said, I'm pretty sure you're Gabriel. I won't tell them where, where you are. All I will say to your family is, we've found you. You're in North Queensland and you can take the ball from there. So she left and I just looked at Pastor Barry and I said, well, what do I do now? And he said, if nothing else, at least get in contact with your father. In fact, that afternoon, after I read the letters that she'd given me, one was from my daughter and one was from a wife, one was from my stepmom and the other one was from my dad. So I read all them and then I sat down that afternoon I sent a letter off to my daughter the longest letter I'd ever written in my life, six and a half pages. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to rewrite it. I just shoved it into an envelope and sent it off. And then I kept humming and hawing one night on a Wednesday night, two weeks after the police lady was there. I screwed up the courage and I rang Dad's home number and a lady answered at the other end and I, I thought, oh, yeah, that's got to be my stepmum. She must have thought I was her son from her first marriage because she was... I asked her what she'd been up to and what have you and she was just going, telling me all things in there and she just finished it off and she said, I'm just about to do the dishes and you're not Michael, are you? I said, no. She said, who is this? I said, somebody who hasn't been home for a long time. And she said, oh, God, it's not you, is it, Gabe? I said, yeah, and with that, it was the biggest scream, it's him, he's on the phone. And then there was a fight between Dan and her about who was going to get onto the phone. Yeah, and then Dad and I talked for about an hour and a quarter, and then we hung up, and next day I went in, I saw Pastor Barry, and he asked him to make me a booking to go down to Sydney, and when I got off the plane and walked out the front, and all I could see was my dad standing out there looking in the crowd to find me. And I yelled out. I dropped my bag and ran. It was just like in the Bible with the, the prodigal son coming home. It, it was unreal. And then Bob, yeah, she came up and got in, went home and just yacked and yacked and yacked and yacked. And I, I, I was staying there for two weeks before I come back up to McCoy and and then I said to them I don't want a cast of thousands there if you want to invite people over one a day or two a day and I'd never met my nephew and my niece from my sister's kids 
and I caught up with them. My sister had only died three months before they found me. My mother had passed away about six years before. So as soon as I saw my niece, I saw my sister. What did she die from? My sister died from a brain tumour. Mum died from um, complications of uh, diabetes. But it's, it's all good. Yeah, I talk with Dad a couple of times a week on the phone. I've been reunited with my daughter and my son as well. Things will never be the same between us, but at least we have been together for a bit. Can I ask about your wife? Yeah, well, she's still alive, but uh, there's too many years gone between and uh, there's some bad memories have been coming up and I, I just don't... I can't see us any, being anything other than just hello, goodbye type of... Are you still legally married? Well, as far as I know, I don't know what the rule is about after the many, there's so many years of separation. I haven't bothered to to go and see a, a solicitor or a family law court. I suppose I should one day, but it's just one of those things there that you don't want to touch. In, and I don't. I know my family's been hurt a lot, and I don't want any more. What about life right now? Where is God? In the story now, what is your biggest passion in your life right now? My biggest passion is just um, being able to be here to help, having a better understanding of God and his word and everything that's come into my life. I'm, I'm still a bit crazy at times, but in a better way than I was before. At least I've grown up a bit. I'm making better decisions. I know you're an absolute blessing to the community of Mackay, especially to Pastor Barry, his wife Karen. God knew what he was doing with you when you needed attention to your eyes, didn't he? Yeah, Karen, well, after the operation, the best thing that was about it was that it really opened my eyes to the world again and to see them not only in a clearer light but in a godlier light too and know that I don't have to have alcohol like I used to have in my life to be happy. I've got so many good friends here at the church that I I didn't have before. That was Karen Hunt in Mackay, Queensland, chatting with Ron Saunders, who had been listed as missing for 23 years. Today's conversation was recorded in September of 2014 and we're sad to say that Ron Saunders, or in reality, Gabriel Nagy, passed away a year after it was recorded, after suffering from a severe stomach ailment. However, it is great to hear that before his death, he was able to reunite with members of his family and find peace with God. Ron, or Gabriel Nagy, was once lost literally and spiritually. But now you could say that he is finally home with his heavenly father and truly has been found. Thanks for joining us for today's incredible story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone you know. Next time on The Story. It was difficult because it is obviously interesting diagnosis. I don't know what word to say. Mm -hmm. Hard, difficult diagnosis to have. But um, to be honest, the last one and a half years of treatment, it was just kind of like one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. There was no real break in which you could just sit down and contemplate, oh my gosh, this is actually happening to me. Mm. 
Catherine Woodward is a young lady from Queensland who unfortunately was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2012. Needless to say, she's had to overcome a number of obstacles to be able to juggle receiving treatment with going to school. But she's doing fantastic and we'll hear her inspiring story next time. The story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.